the last time I introduced my much admired and dear friend Michael Wood was here in Oxford for the Clarendon Lectures in 2008, which led to his superb book on Yeats and violence, a fine and subtle circling around Yeats's poem 1919. Tonight's a wonderful opportunity to catch him in Oxford again while he takes a year in London away from his duties as Charles Barnwell Strout Professor of English and Professor of Comparative Literature at Princeton University. Michael is one of the most richly versatile, wide-ranging and culturally adventurous of critics and writers. In his brilliant moves between disciplines and languages, between Kafka, Buñuel, and Marquez, between Yeats and Nabokov, between scholarship and reviewing, film and literature, translation and reception, his work is always vividly compelling, generously questioning, closely attentive, and fresh and free of all academic stuffiness. One of his best and most searching works is an interrogation of oracles, and I take it as an encouraging and benign augury for the newly founded Oxford Centre for Life Writing here that it is he who has come here today to give our inaugural lecture. It's true to his interests in crossing genres and crossing languages, interests which play right into the central focus of the Life Writing Centre, that he's talking tonight on Proust's letters. I'm absolutely delighted to have him here. Please make him very welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Hermione, for the welcome. It's, it's a great pleasure to be here and a pleasure to be part of the opening of this, uh, this centre. I'm honoured to be associated with the launch. I, I have a deep and lasting interest in biography and writing of Lives, although I am myself no kind of biographer, I have to say, although unless uh, spending 20 years failing to write a biography of Proust uh, is, uh, is a special kind of qualification. Um, this is a talk about, about how we read letters, uh, how we read letters and other non-fictional documents when attempting to understand a life, uh, whether with a view to writing a life or just getting some sense of who our friends and relatives are or used to be. Uh, I thought this was going to be a talk about the element of fiction which pretty much automatically creeps into uh, works of nonfiction. Not that all, not that fiction and nonfiction are the same, but that they are routinely intermingled. And there's an element of that in this talk, but it didn't quite go in that direction. It went in another direction, which is the question of, of uh, different registers of truth. Uh, that is, how many truths can we entertain at the same time, particularly if they're contradictory? Uh, uh, there is a question of truth and error uh, in biography, as in other matters. Uh, uh, and it's important, of course, to get things right, and people frequently get things wrong. We all frequently get things wrong. But I want to take, in this talk, I want to take a certain level of rightness for granted, rather as we take a certain level of basic correctness for granted in good in translations, for example, and then we can worry about uh, other questions, questions of interpretation and the rest, and not about whether uh, we've got the right words or whether we've got the actual dates right. Uh, Proust is going to be my example, but much of what I have to say will be applicable to uh, other cases. Still, Proust is a wonderful marker for this particular occasion, since, as Hermione says in her little book on biography, he made, I quote, he made his life's work of fiction, which both resisted and invited biographical invitation. And he did this in part, I'm going to suggest, because his life itself both resisted and invited the fiction he turned much of it into. Proust is a great subject for a biographer, but a dangerous one. If the job isn't too easy, it's too hard. Let me open with uh, a little real-life fable. Uh, it has plenty of atmosphere, and it's all about words and the meaning of words and about reading in the most literal and immediate sense. <clears throat> Proust worked on his immense novel, Remembrance of Things Past, uh, later called in English, In Search of Lost Time, from early 1908 until his death in November 1922. As we have it, the last sentence of the work reads like this. This is my very literal uh, version of it. So, if strength was left to me long enough 
to accomplish my work. I should not fail, first of all, to describe men there, even if it made them monstrous creatures, as occupying a place so considerable alongside the so restricted space, a uh, place re reserved for them in space, a place, on the contrary, extended beyond measure, since they simultaneously, like giants plunged into the years, touch periods they have lived through, so distant from each other, between which so many days have intervened in time. Okay, the, 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 the main clause here is I should not fail to describe men as occupying a place in time. All the rest is parenthesis, qualification, addition, embroidery, whatever you wish to call it. And this sort of filling in from inside the sentence or inside the plot, inside the book, had actually been going on since the early days of Proust's work and would go on, I have always assumed, until Proust could literally, physically write no more. That is, he would not, he would always have written, he knew how it was going to end, but he would never stop adding subordinate clauses. That is, as long as he could live, as long as he was alive, there would always be another subordinate clause <clears throat> that he could move to. Yet, in the spring of 1922, the year he died, uh, he died in November, in the spring he told his housekeeper, Celeste Alberet, that he had written the last word of his book and was now free to die. A wonderful thing happened to me tonight, he said, or he's reported as saying, a great piece of news in Grand Nouvelle. Tonight I wrote the word end. Cette nuit, j'ai mis le mot fin. Maintenant, je peux mourir. I can die. This story seems, surely seems too good to be true, and uh, many people have thought so, and it also contradicts my theory about Proust's perpetual writing until he dropped. <coughs> but it turns out to be highly likely that Celeste was indeed telling the truth. Proust did say he had written the word end, and he had written the word end, and it also seems to be true that he kept on writing after he'd done this. This is what your handout actually shows to you with extraordinary graphic clarity. <laughs> Uh, we, have, um, we have plenty of other evidence. We don't need the thing we have in front of you to, to, to uh, understand that we have lots of evidence for Proust continuing to write after he'd written the word fin in the spring, including, apparently, I'm told by scholars who've seen these things, a tisane-stained envelope on which he wrote a few additions uh, to an early scene of the novel in the night before he died. Uh, but we also have this remarkable piece of graphic evidence which you are looking at. We see here, you see at the bottom, Proust did indeed write the word fin, F-I-N with a capital letter, and then he wrote over it, adding the tail of a sentence in slightly smaller handwriting, which actually crosses the top of the F of fin. We don't need to go into the detail of the syntax. Uh, this is not a, it's not a, it's a seminar. This is a center for life writing, but not textual studies. Uh, but, but it is worth pausing over what we can actually see on that page. Uh, I take it there are, there are what must have been at one point the last words, une place au contraire prolongée sans mesure dans le temps, crossed out. Or the, the Donatons crossed out. Um, after that, there's a space, and he writes, fin. Uh, scribbled in, in the space remaining, is an extra clause which itself contains corrections and additions, uh, and which reads, I'll read it out for you, you have it in front of you, puisqu'il touche simultanément comme des géants plongés dans les années à des époques vécues par eux, si distantes, entre lesquelles tant de jours sont venus se placer both versions end with exactly the same phrase. And this novel was always, this, novel, this is a novel which begins with the word longtemps for a long time and ends with dans le temps. And it was always going to begin like that, even when it was only two volume operation rather than seven volumes. <laughs> so there was no question about the beginning and the ending. The only question is about this endless, the endless middle. Okay, I take this fable then to suggest that uh, a story that seems too good to be true could be true, that Celeste Albert was actually telling the truth, that the truth uh, of such a story could be limited because it's framed by another truth, that is, Proust said, he, said he'd finished and wrote the word end, but he hadn't finished. Uh, it's true that he hadn't finished. And the truth, uh, uh, more broadly, truth itself, is often a matter of selection and emphasis rather than anything like simple verifiability. The fiction here, let's say, is Proust's own. It's a form of illusion. He really thought he'd finished. But it's 
a real fiction. That is, it's a real illusion because he was wrong. He hadn't finished. We can believe then that he actually thought this and he said this, and we can also believe that he must have known in some sense that he would never stop working on his book. As long as he was able to write, he would be writing. And in doing this, he fulfilled a sort of reverse promise he'd made to his father in a letter sent long before, in 1893, when he was 22. He was willing, he said to his father, to pursue any career his father insisted on. And he did actually get a law degree. Uh, although, he continued, in spite of his willingness, it's not that I don't bel still believe that anything other that I will do, apart from literature and philosophy, is for me a waste of time. Du temps perdu, he said. Temps perdu, a poignant phrase. In the end, he didn't waste any time, and he couldn't waste any time. I turn now to uh, the mother of my title. Let's start with a broad historical fact since they're interesting in their own way. Uh, Dr. Adrien Proust and Jeanne Weil were married on September 3rd, 1870, the day after the disastrous defeat of the French by the Depressions at Sedan. Sedan. Almost everything that happened in France in the next 40 years was marked by this defeat and by French responses to it, including the modernization of the army in which the Jewish Alfred Dreyfus could become an officer. Jeanne was pregnant during the Commune, a time of harsh repression of a chaotic popular movement where burning buildings could be seen almost everywhere in Paris almost every day. Marcel Proust was born in 1871, his brother Robert two years later. I've said the question of fiction, this is, these, are, these are not fictional, these are the facts, there's not a large question of fiction here, but there is something like fiction hovering in the air because in, even with the facts, well, at least with these facts, we do need to think about social aspirations, social contexts, and about the people, who people thought they were and who they thought they might become. And as I've suggested with the story of the defeated at Sedan, the very particular history shapes the whole context of these lives. It is a context where we might think, for example, that a marriage between a rich Jewish girl of 21 and a uh, a, gentle, a Gentile doctor of rural origins of 36 was unusual. We might think that such a marriage said something striking and interesting about both partners. But actually the marriage, it seems, was Jeanne's family's idea, uh, not necessarily hers and not necessarily Adrian's. Uh, uh, they were very close to, the, to her family all their life, and they were quite close to Adrian's family, although none of his family came to the wedding. But in actual context, in the context of 1870s France, uh, this marriage, while certainly unusual, was not as controversial or not as unusual or not as difficult as such a marriage would later become. And hindsight, thinking about this marriage with everything we know about what happened afterwards, reveals a kind of pathos, I think, in the ease and success of this marriage. The ability of the husband and wife to see each other's persons, to represent different modalities of tradition and family and culture without quarreling over them or making them exclusive markers of identity. Jeanne Weil did not convert to Catholicism, although she had her children baptized. She did not insist on her Jewishness. She did not deny it either, any more than her sons did. Her biographer, Evelyne Vlostano, makes two telling remarks on this subject. Jeanne was as far from the ghetto as Adrien was from his village. Although, of course, the very sentence remembers the ghetto and the village that they're so far from. And she also says, Evelyne uh, Blochlana also says uh, of uh, Jeanne, her marriage to Adrien Proust might have given her the illusion that she was a French woman, like everyone else. But the Dreyfus affair lifted the veil. But actually, her idea that she was a French woman was not an illusion. She was a French woman. But the Dreyfus showed to her and to everybody else that being French and being thought of as French were not quite the same, and that Frenchness itself had changed, and that Frenchness no longer included certain options. By the end of the century, the ghetto and the village, dead or dying in social history, had made an alarming comeback in mythology in the haunted minds of people who thought assimilation was impossible or undesirable. We know it's part of the legend that Herzl invented the notion of Israel uh, at the Dreyfus Affair. It's not actually true, but it is. That's how the legend. That's how the legend goes. I'm not going to pursue this particular piece of history any further now, although certain elements of, of Jeanne's Jewishness will come back. But I wanted at this moment just to echo a point.
that Hermione makes about biography, uh, that it is always about something larger than the person. With any luck, the person won't disappear into this larger something, but every individual is several other creatures as well as being an individual. Every individual is a member of a whole run of densely populated social aggregations. Every person is a member of a family, a gender, a class, a profession, an ethnic group, a nationality, and much more. So we think of Proust as a writer who is different from other writers, and he is. All good writers are different from other writers. But they do, by definition, belong to the category of writer, and they belong to other categories too. So that we can always ask, and should ask, whether it is as a writer, as a Frenchman, as an Englishwoman, as a son, as a daughter, as a socialite, as a recluse, as a rebel, and so on, that the person is speaking at any given moment, even when they are unmistakably speaking as their own remarkable selves. A recurring mode of this broader speech is to talk, as my title does, about family roles rather than people, all about my mother. I stole the title from Pedro Almodóvar. His film's called Todo Sobre Mi Madre, although actually it doesn't mean what, I, what I've used it to mean. It's all about my mother in the Spanish title means everything I know about my mother, not it's all about my mother. Right? Although when The Guardian recently used the title for an article about Jeanette Winterson, it did have the meaning, it's all about her mother. <clears throat> Here is another example. It's from the, the French biographer. Uh, this is of, use, of using the, the roles rather than the persons. Uh, from the French uh, biographer of Proust, uh, Proust and his mother, Michel Schneider. Uh, the mother and the son love each other to a degree they can't cope with. Ils s'aiment à non plus pouvoir. And they hate each other, but they don't know it. So, ils ne le savent pas. These, this couple, this mother and this son who love and hate each other in this way, they're on the way to becoming stereotypes, not of all mothers and all sons, but of certain mothers and certain sons, of whole sets of people rather than this particular couple. We can't refuse this generalizing mode, I think, for the reason we shouldn't, for reasons I've just given, but we can, um, let's say, watch it. <laughs> it's easy to lose people in this generalizing mode. It's easy to turn a mother into the mother. And... Uh, the sun into the sun is particularly easier if you're in any way drawn to psychoanalytic discourses where, where large abstractions known as the father and the mother do lots of, lots of talking. Uh, Proust's letters, which I turn to now for a while, <clears throat> occupy 21 rather thick volumes. For a man who was always ill and tired, he managed to write a lot. He wrote a lot of letters, a lot of articles, he wrote some short stories, some brilliant parodies and two extremely long novels. Uh, his letters to, his, to and from his mother, 149 of them, were collected in French in 1953 and translated into English in 1958. I'm going to take my instances initially at least from this volume. My question, you remember, is how we read letters. My short and final answer, as they say on the quiz show, is that uh, we read letters the way we read everything else. And I do believe this kind of parity is important. A text is a text is a text. <clears throat> even if a text is sometimes an expression on a face or an elusive, lingering joke. Reading is not guessing, it is reading. If I have a letter to hand, I can interpret it. I can be wrong, even insane, but my interpretation will still be a different sort of activity from the wild guesswork that bad biographers are always going in for. This is where they say, with no evidence of any kind, what X or Y, quote, must have felt. <clears throat> But of course, even if we do read letters the way we read anything else, uh, we still need to say how we read whatever it is we're reading. And I'm going to suggest three possible modes. Uh, this is for brevity and for clarity, and you know, well, because life is rather short. Uh, many more modes are available to us than, than the three, and we do use all those, a lot of them all the time. But without the three modes I'm proposing, reading of any real scope cannot take place at all. This is a slightly controversial claim, I hope, since one of my modes, the third of my modes, is over-reading. The other two modes are just reading and letting the reading sink in, or needing to let it sink in. <clears throat> just reading, then. Just reading would, would occur whenever a plain understanding of a letter or any other text is felt to be pretty much uh, sufficient and pretty much unproblematic. Uh, this form of understanding wouldn't have to be simple or simple-minded or always only literal. It could accommodate figures of speech and narrative complexities as long as they were of the kind that any good speaker of the language would get 
more or less immediately. Examples would be straightforward reception of information. Uh, I'm getting the 5.40 train, so I'll be there at 7. Responses to direct empirical medical diagnoses. The x-rays show a slight lesion on the left lung. And even quite elaborate stories, even whole novels, I think, as long as no serious supplementary or independent interpretative work is required of the reader. Irony, too, would work in this mode of reading as long as there was no serious disagreement about what was ironic and what was not. The moment I'm able to say such and such a remark is clearly intended ironically, while you can say I don't know where you would get such an idea, we begin to move or need to move into the second mode of reading, which involves what I'm calling sinking in or reading plus some reflection on and prolongation of the reading. This reflection and prolongation, this interpretative work, doesn't have to feel like work, and we do a lot of it intuitively, more or less unconsciously. But it is work. It takes us some way beyond what just reading gives us, and our expertise at it is what makes us surprised quite often at other people's readings. They read the same words as we do, the words have the meanings they ordinarily have. How can they have arrived at such a different sense of what is being said? Examples would be our responses to stronger or more disguised forms of irony, as I've suggested, to deadpan jokes, to medical diagnoses that include a certain ambiguity in their delivery, as, for example, this test is not going to tell us anything we don't know, and it is quite painful, but many people in your situation have decided to have it done anyway. And... <laughs> <laughs> now it is, uh, I have lots of examples of that kind. They, 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 I, I cooked them out for my oracles book. Uh, and uh, uh, narratives which won't fully work unless we develop them ourselves. Novels or poems with unreliable narrators, let's say, or plots full of complex implications, or the films of Ingmar Bergman rather than those of Billy Wilder. Even if Some Like It Hot is actually a greater movie than Wild Strawberries. <clears throat> but then... <laughs> What about my third mode, which I've called overreading for short? I don't quite mean ordinary overreading. We can overread anything, just as we can underread anything. I think of occasions where only a considerable stretch beyond our usual idioms of interpretation will allow us to feel we are responding properly to what we read. Something in the text is so extraordinary that it calls for a correspondingly extraordinary gesture from us. We can't just tame it or ignore it. Certain interpretive disciplines, like psychoanalysis, have domesticated or professionalized this kind of approach. Effectively turned, they have effectively turned my third mode of reading back into my second. There are advantages to this move, but there is a lot to be said, as we shall see more clearly in a moment, in, for maintaining the distinction. There is quite a gap, for instance, between saying that a son is apologizing to his mother and claiming that he is, in the same words, trying to aggravate her. And there's a further gap between saying this and arguing that he's expressing a wish to kill him. All three propositions might be true, but they can't all be true in the same way. After I devised this three-mode pattern of reading, I realized I had borrowed the strategy and the structure from an essay by Roland Barthes called The Third Meaning. I thought I'd invented it, but I, it didn't come as any surprise to find I hadn't. Uh, but there are differences between what I'm doing here and what Barthes is doing. He, he separates three levels of meaning in a picture, uh, in, in an image. In this case, a still, or a series of stills from the opening scenes of Eisenstein's Ivan the Terrible. And the first level for about is the level of what he calls communication. Uh, this is essentially conveying narrative information, uh, the story of the people. In this case, we know we're being told this is the coronation of a czar. Uh, the next level for about is the level of what he calls signification, by which he means the use of whatever conventional symbolism is at hand, uh, gold, ornate clothing, ceremony, as intimations of opulence, majesty, power, and the rest. And then there's the third meaning, Bart says, which he calls signifying, but that's only because he doesn't know what else to call it. Uh, there are aspects of the image that don't communicate in his terms and don't signify in his terms, but they are caught in the act of doing something. They float. They are present in the picture, but interesting, perhaps, only to our eccentric attention. As examples, Bart names the courtier's makeup in the scene, the stupid nose of one of them and the fine eyelids of another. Is his attention wandering, or is he seeing something that the first and second meanings cannot contain or cover? If there is a third meaning, it will have to be called obtuse, Bart says, and he accepts the full range of meanings of the word. A longer quotation from Bart about obtuse. An obtuse angle is greater than a right angle. 
The third meaning, too, seems to me greater than the pure perpendicular, the trenchant legal upright of the narrative. The obtuse meaning seems to extend beyond culture, knowledge, information. It belongs to the family of puns, jokes, useless exertions. Indifferent to moral and aesthetic categories, the trivial, the futile, the artificial, the parodic, it sides with the carnival aspect of things. A little later, he says the third meaning is, quote, as disturbing as a guest who persists in staying at a party without uttering a word, even when we have no need of him. Uh, now, Bart sees all three meanings as present at once, and this also happens, as we shall see with my own three modes of reading. But in my view, in my sense of these levels of reading, they don't all have to be present. Sometimes just reading is fine, and sometimes just reading is more than enough. Sometimes the first and the second meanings go together very well. We don't need the third meaning. Because above all, Bart's third meaning is a matter of choice. It's a matter of the spectator's attention. It's a matter of what we find or choose to find in an image. And my third mode of reading is rather rarer than this, and also we can't do it with any old text because it's provoked by the text itself. Bart's third meaning, then, is an interesting and perhaps indispensable piece of perversity on the part of the viewer. My own sense of the third reading is an extravagance in the text which requires an extravagance in the reader. If there is no extravagance in the text, we don't need any extravagance in our reading. But we do need to do something about extravagances when we meet them, and that is why I'm including the third reading among the basic necessities of the art of reading. Proust's letters and his mother's are full of sentences which are just require reading or require just reading. There are probably more of this kind of sentence than of any others. They both report on hotels, travel, acquaintances. They discuss the Dreyfus affair. They tell jokes. They worry about each other's health. Jean Proust in particular is given to quotations from the classics, especially Racine and Moliere. And of course, something more than literal meaning is involved in such a practice. Several other signals are in the air at the same time if you quote someone else rather than speak your own words. Uh, the sharing of a literary secret, an illusion, a bit of boasting, a bit of self-deprecation, and a lot of indirection. But I don't think we need to move beyond the mode, my first mode of just reading, to get all this. The mother's anecdotes, similarly, I think, uh, can easily be dealt with in the mode of the first mode of just reading. They often have the purpose of cheering the sun up, but this is not a hidden or deferred meaning, and it doesn't detract from their fun as fun. Here's some examples of their fun. She recalls an old gag. Quote, you used to laugh at the dialogue between the gentleman and the railway engine. Uh, locomotive in French is feminine. The man says to the railway train, Vous fumez, madame? Do you smoke? <laughs> Presumably, Proust was very young when he liked this joke. She, um, she then evokes a recent accident uh, in which a, a train gets bored with being on the rail, an engine gets bored with being on the rails and takes to the tram tracks instead. She then says, it would be as funny as it was frightening if an unfortunate woman hadn't been left on the tracks. It's a little macabre, I think, but it doesn't, I don't, it still doesn't call for second or third modes of reading. You might not agree about this. Or she, she describes a group of English tourists in the Louvre. The guide casually points to a painting and says, this is Charles I by Van Dyck. And Jean Proust writes, as the tone uh, meant this is not important, that English tourists scarcely raised their heads, saying to themselves, we have English kings at home, and they rushed off at top speed to catch up with the guide who was already pacing the next gallery. But then there is a form of information in these letters or a way of informing which begins to look more like a symptom uh, than a communication or more like a language in which an otherwise unspoken communication can take place. The mother constantly asks about the son's health and the son constantly, obsessively answers. Now, unless we are... If you read this, this, these letters... I think you've got about 300 pages. If you read these letters and you're not a card-carrying hypochondriac... Uh, as I'm not, you're going to find these letters very strange and possibly extremely annoying. And you may just feel like leaving them to it. <laughs> this is their life. They can get on with it. Um, uh, but if we want to understand what's happening, we have to do something else. And we must, I think, now turn to our second mode of reading. That is, we have to live with this language a little bit and see what the language is doing and let it sink in. Our first mode of reading won't do this for us. So think about these, for example. Here's a, here's a letter. Uh, Jean Proust says she wants to hear from Marcel she wants him to fill in a kind of questionnaire. Got up at, went to bed at, hours outdoors, hours of rest, etc. She says, I ask, and I ask again. Je demande, je redemande. Went to bed at, got up at, and so on. 
the son doesn't comply with his formula usually, but he tells her plenty about his health. A few quotes. I don't know how my hay fever came back these last two days. No asthma last night. Intense asthma. I came home sneezing, coughing, and above all, full of asthma. He tells her when he smokes the cigarettes that were supposed to keep asthma away. The, the, mysteriously, around the turn of the century, it was thought that smoking certain kind of perfumed cigarettes was good for asthma. I think you just get your head around this, this idea. But, but he, so there's a lot of talk in these letters about, about smoking or not smoking. I mean, so I kept thinking of the joke about the railway engine. I kept thinking, I, I was writing in the margin, monsieur, as, as there was the, uh, but he tells her about the drugs he's taking, the drugs he's not taking, and all this kind of stuff. She tells him to dress properly when he goes out and above all to get his hair cut. She says, your hair gets in the way of my sight when I think of you. It's a wonderful, wonderful phrase. <laughs> uh, but I should say that Marcel is 18 when, he writes the first, when she writes the first of the letters about with a questionnaire, and 33 when she writes the last one about the haircut. <clears throat> it's hard not to put together the story that they are enacting, but not quite telling themselves. She's making sure her son remains an infant, and he's, make, he's making sure she remains his mother. Both of them use political metaphors for this kind of relationship. She and her letters, he and his fiction, gouvernance, abdication, and the rest, uh, regime. Uh, so they clearly understand something of what is happening. But they don't, I think, quite understand the damage they're doing to each other. And they don't understand what alternatives there might be to this tenderly stalled or frozen relationship. It's not all damage, though, and even if some version of our second mode of reading seems indispensable here, I don't think we should over-pathologize this couple. They don't always seem strange. Sometimes they just seem old-fashioned, uh, a little pre-Freudian. And I don't think it's true to say that they hate each other as well as love each other. I don't think they hate each other at all. They love each other in a mode of intricate and sometimes discreetly irritated dependence. At least that's my brief description. We could describe the relationship in all kinds of ways. I hope I've said enough to suggest we can't do it on the basis of the first mode of reading alone. We would need to move to our second sinking in mode. Now, what about the third mode? <clears throat> there was a wonderful example <clears throat> of a demand for this variety of reading in a letter from Jeanne Proust following a quarrel she and Adrien had with Marcel. This seems to be, as far as I can tell, the only quarrel they ever had in their whole lives, uh, only actual row. Uh, they were very they were strange people, but they were extraordinarily nice people, uh, and they were very polite to each other. And they're very polite again as soon as the quarrel is over. What seems to have happened is the end of the quarrel, whatever it was about, at the end of the screaming, uh, Marcel slammed the door of the room behind him so hard that the glass in the panels of the door broke. Uh, it's also a possibility that he later broke a vase in his bedroom because he was still so angry. Uh, after this, he's written to apologize. Uh, this, note, this note has been lost, but we have his mother's reply in full. This is her reply in full to his note of apology for having smashed the glass and had a tantrum. She says, <clears throat> My dear little one, mon cher petit, your letter did me good. Your father and I were left with a very painful sense of things, une impression bien pénible. I must tell you that I had not thought for a moment of saying anything at all in the presence of Jean, the servant. And that if that happened, it was absolutely without my knowledge. Let's think no more and talk no more about it. The broken glass will merely be what it is in the temple, the symbol of an indissoluble union. Your father wishes you a good night, and I kiss you tenderly. J.P. Small uh, postscript. I do, however, have to return to the subject in order to recommend that you don't walk without shoes in the dining room. <laughs> Because of the glass. <clears throat> now, <laughs> there's a fictional version of this event in Proust's early novel, Jean Santé, and late in life he told uh, Celeste Albery about it. Biographers have made various guesses about what the quarrel is about, Proust's homosexuality, possibly, or his, his uh, expensive lifestyle, too many people to dinner. Uh, uh, in the novel, uh, part of the quarrel is about his not wanting to get a job. But what concerns us here uh, uh, are two things, not really what the quarrel was about, but the, the, the mother's letter and the postscript about the glass in the dining room and the image of the Jewish marriage. There's a breaking of the glass is what happens in the other Jewish marriage. The, the, the couple drink from the same cup and then they smash the glass. Uh, Evelyn Blochdano thinks that Proust, she says about the, the, the postscript, uh, that Jean Proust's forgiveness is contradicted by the mock warning about the glass. 
I don't myself think it's contradicted. I think the, the forgiveness is genuine, but there is something about this postscript that is mock. There's something about it that makes it more than a warning, and it's probably, here's a guess, it's a bit of what we would now call passive-aggressive further talk about what we're now going to talk about. Uh, we can't get to this sense by just reading, but we can get there in our second mode of reading. But what about the allusion to the wedding and this glass that is broken after the couple have drunk out of it? I do think we have to either to ignore this or reach for some mode of third reading, or reach for some extravagant mode of interpretation that will match the craziness of what's going on here. George Painter uh, does a very elegant job on this, quite complex. This is what George Painter, the biographer, first biographer of Proust, says. The first full biography. Uh, Henri Morois had written a biography before, but Painter was the first full-scale biography. Uh, if Madame Proust's words, this is Painter, if Madame Proust's words were given their full, terrible meaning, they would imply a mystic union with her son, more valid than her marriage in an alien faith to his father. But their consequences need not be taken so seriously. Psychoanalysis has not yet been invented. And moreover, the malady in Proust's heart fed not on his present relationship with his mother, but on the buried, unalterable fixation of his childhood. This is a quite wonderful piece of having your cake and eating it, or perhaps better of throwing the cake out of the window and still eating it. Um, <clears throat> we don't need to take the words seriously, but we do need to know what they mean. They would mean if we did take them seriously. <laughs> There's no need for psychoanalysis, not because it hadn't been invented, it had been invented by 1897, but because we have our own brand of psychoanalysis, which involves childhood fixation. <laughs> in terms of this, uh, the, the terms of, that I'm talking about, modes of reading I'm discussing, Painter has, in fact, elegantly invoked our third mode of, mode of reading only in rapid succession to deny it and then return to another version of it. For what it's worth, I think Jean Proust is not thinking even unconsciously of a mystic union with her son, but the extravagance of her analogy does mark a degree of continuing distress. It does seek to contain and to compensate for that distress in a way that all the reasonable talk of forgiving and forgetting cannot. But my main point, again, is not this particular interpretation of the image, but the need for some such interpretation, uh, uh, an interpretation which in some way recognizes uh, the excessive uh, inappropriate emphasis of this image, as if forgiveness itself can't be enough unless it's too much. For two last illustrations of how only too much could be nearly enough, stylistically and in other senses, I want to turn to two later texts by Proust. One a letter, uh, and one an article in Le Figaro, where Proust himself, on the first occasion, like painter, performs our third mode of reading and then retreats from it. And on the second occasion, unlike Painter, goes all out for a full-blown third reading. The letter uh, was written to Maurice Barres uh, in early 1906, uh, nearly four months after Jean Proust's death. Barres was an extremely gifted writer, also an arch-conservative anti-Dreyfusard, brilliantly anti-Semitic, and author of one of the most horrible of many horrible articles about Alfred Dreyfus's public disgrace and punishment in 1895. Among other things, he said, uh, Dreyfus's mere face and manner, quote, create an aura that even the coolest spectator finds revolting. He was not born to live in any society. You can tell this from looking at him. But in one of his later mothers to, later letters to his mother, Proust, a staunch believer in Dreyfus's innocence from the beginning, both of them were, both he and his mother, uh, uh, Proust relates, in a letter to his mother, one of his last letters, relates a solemn reconciliation with Barres. Where he, Proust, he says, did not mince words, but told Barres a few hard truths, political and moral. Barres took this well, Proust said, and was very nice about it. I mention this because it seems so strange that Proust should say so much about his feelings uh, for his Jewish mother to this anti-Semite. And because I think, I haven't worked this out properly, but it may be that, that Barres' repellent politics make him, in a certain sense, the perfect confessor for this kind of thing. I haven't quite... Uh, this is a an incoherent intuition. I don't know what it means, but I'm just going to say it because that's what I think. This is certainly overreading. It might be overreading of the kind I'm proposing. It might just be merely delusional. Uh, Proust starts this letter. It's a very intricate, complicated letter. He starts the letter, as he starts so many letters, by apologizing for his delay in replying, as we all start letters like that. But he starts in by apologizing in the, and by mentioning his illness. He's thanking Barres for a letter of condolence about his mother's death. He says he has often reread it and that he imagines his mother reading it with him, admiring it with him. This is already a rather Baroque notion if you think about it for a minute. Uh, he then comes to his chief point. 
which is that Barès had kindly said that anyone could see that he, Proust, was the person his mother preferred. Literally, he was what his mother preferred. Que j'étais ce que maman préférait. This is wrong, Proust says. She loved him infinitely, but she preferred his father. The proof is that when his father died in 1903, she did not survive him for very long. She didn't stay to look after Marcel. She wanted to, Proust says, uh, but she couldn't. Elle a voulu et n'a pas pu lui survivre. Uh, even though she knew, uh, Proust says, how much, what a loss she would be to him. So the, the, the gist of this is, how could she go and die uh, just because uh, Adrien, my father, had died? Um, there is a, a curious sense of, uh, it, it's not clear uh, how much will and choice is, is, is involved in the word preference. Since, since he said she wanted to, but she couldn't. On the other hand, she, he's saying she preferred my father. And so there, there may be a sense in which preference means something stronger than will or choice. But in any case, she did go and die when she was supposed to stay and look after him. Right. There was something grotesquely selfish about this remark, if we take it literally, and even if we don't, for that matter. But there are also lots, lots of other interesting elements. Anger, uh, a kind of surprise that his mother should in the end be so, so should actually not prefer him. A surprise that that his mother should not be omnipotent, that she couldn't die when she wanted to. Uh, a kind of magical notion that dying has to do with the affections uh, rather than the body. And at the end of the sentence about how she didn't stay to look after him, he offers a very curious qualification of his thought. His mother left him, he says, even though she knew he would be helpless, and even though she believed him to be more helpless than he actually was. At this point, you, uh, if, if you any kind of reader of Proust will recognize this, you recognize a kind of a cool, analytic, let's just call it honesty, intervening in the world of fantasy. He's not going to lie about it. A certain kind of truth-telling emerges. The fact is, I was sick, I didn't need it, but I was not as sick as she, she thought. Uh, well, let me put it more, more fully. I was not as sick as I had succeeded in making her believe I was. Right. This is what this is all about. Right. Uh, is he saying that he didn't need her as much as he thought he did or as he would like to have needed her? And in any event, what, what, what I've been calling the extravagance of this image, I mean, uh, she went and died on me, uh, it turns into something else as the letter continues, something like a kind of clinical pedantry about the exact meaning of preference. He, get, he comes back to the word preference and he says, this is, the, this is an extraordinary sentence, he says to Barris, if I was not in the strict sense what she preferred, then some subordinate clauses. And for that matter, the idea of having a preference among her duties would have seemed to her a fault. And perhaps I would grieve her by introducing nuances where she did not want them. So the grammar is, if I was not in the strict sense what she preferred, she did love me uh, a hundred times too much. Since, the sentence goes on, I now have the double torment of thinking she could have known and how anxiously known that she was leaving me. And above all, the torment of thinking that the whole of the end of her life was so afflicted, so constantly preoccupied with my health. In other words, it's a perfect success story of the child blackmails the mother and the blackmail took. Right. Now he feels terrible about it. Right. And he says, an even worse sentence now, he goes on to, he says, all our life, his mother's and his life, was a form of training for the moment, an entraînement, a form of training for the moment when she would leave him. But it was a training that was completely worthless. He wasn't in any better shape to have her leave him when she died than he was at the beginning of the training, like 20 years of training had been completely wasted. But what has happened is what I'm calling the extravagance has now turned into something else, a kind of accuracy of insight into a condition, into remorse, and into a sense of bereavement, which are, which are intricate, I want to say, but no longer strange, actually, and no longer overemphasized. We've, we've lost the overemphasis, we've lost the strangeness, we've lost the extravagance. But perhaps Proust could only arrive at this lucidity through the performance of the extravagance, of the, the, the grotesque um, acts of selfishness <coughs> and magic. <coughs> last, last instance, now in the uh, Figaro article. 
Um, this is where the, the performance of extravagance really becomes quite exceptional. In February 1907, so two years later, on the front page of the Figaro, uh, I, I'm, this, is a, this is a famous article. I mean, it's famous, but it's not all that much discussed. But it, it, I'm, I'm amazed by this article, all kinds of reasons. What I'm mainly amazed by, though, is that the Figaro would publish it. <laughs> You'll see why. Um, it's called Filial Sentiments of a Parasite. Uh, uh, in February 1907, on the front page of the Figaro, big, two, two, you know, full spread all across the page, he published a long article about a man called Henri van Blarenberg, who the week before had killed his mother and then had killed himself. Bruce titled this article, Filial Feelings of a Parasite, Sentiment Filial d'un Parasite, and he interpreted the man's act as one of abrupt and inexplicable madness, which could only lead him to kill himself in despair once he'd returned to his to lucidity. The assumption, that is, is that he loved his mother as all sons love their mothers, and some mysterious, strange way he happens to have killed her. Um, Proust uses this article to do several things. To associate himself as a bereaved child with Henri van Blarenberg, to let us know his rather slender and banal social contacts with the man. He did know him. He met a, he actually had, he'd written to him about, about a possible gay contact. He, the chap worked for the railways, and he thought he might better look up a person for him that he rather fancied at the railway station. Uh, he, to write, um, uh, he writes many essays on, on the topics of uh, vision and memory, reading the newspapers, possible connections between weather and the nerves, and then he does two absolutely wonderful things. And this is the, where the power and the interest of this otherwise rather erratic article lie. He wonders whether the eclipse of human reason can ever be understood, and he suggests that we all kill those who love us because of the sheer strain we place on their affection. Had Proust read Wilde's Ballad of Reading Jail, with its haunting refrain for each man kills the thing he loves, yet each man does not die, almost certainly he had. Three years later, in 1910, uh, 1910, Proust says, that phrase of Wilde's, without knowing it then, I had literally written it and had commented on it at length. Literally, textuellement, he said. Without knowing it, I think, means without being consciously aware that he was, that he was referring to it. Not, I think, without knowing about Wilde. He probably read it in, 19, in 1898 when it appeared. And of course, Proust hadn't quite written Wilde's phrase, each man kills the thing he loves. Uh, he'd written... <laughs> Uh, he'd written, each man kills the thing who loves him, which loves him. Right. Each man does kill the thing he loves, but only, uh, well, we can go further. Each man kills the thing he loves, but the thing each man kills is his mother, and he kills her through her love for him. In Proust's phrasing, the love of a son for his mother is so taken, thoroughly for taking but doesn't even merit a grammatical mention. All boys love their mother. The question is not about whether they love the mother, the question is about what the mother's love for the boy will do to the mother. Uh, before she died, the, uh, Van Blarenberg's mother, I mean, this grotesque sort of uh, crime scene, uh, she, she's sort of, she's dying on the landing and the, and the son is about to shoot himself. Uh, and she is supposed to have said, what have you done to me? Qu'as-tu fait de moi? And Proust takes this as his theme of his last paragraph. What have you done to me? What have you done to me? This is quite a long paragraph, but I'll read it because it is quite amazing. If we care to think about it, Proust continues, there is perhaps no truly loving mother who could not, at her death, and often will before, address this reproach to her son. What have you done to me? In the end, we make older, we kill everyone who loves us through the worries we give them, through the troubled tenderness we inspire in them, and the fears we ceaselessly cause. If we knew how to see in a loved body the slow work of destruction wrought by the painful tenderness that animates it, how to see the withered eyes, the previously indomitable black hair now defeated like the rest and going white, the hardened arteries, the blocked kidneys, the strained heart, the defeated appetite for life, the slow heavy walk, the mind whose hopes were once invincible, now knowing that it has nothing left to hope for, gaiety itself dried up forever, that innate and seemingly immortal gaiety which kept such pleasant company with sadness, perhaps the person who could see that, in the belated moment of lucidity that the lives most bewitched by fantasies may well have, since even Don Quixote had his, perhaps that person, like Henri van Blarenberg, when he had finished off his mother with dagger blows, would retreat from the horror of life and throw himself on a gun, to die straight away. Extraordinary, extraordinary passage. A great deal to say about, uh, about, of course, for the moment I just want to point out 
the, the detailed magical logic. Mothers may die anyway because they are mortal. Even the craziest son knows that. But that's not how this argument goes. Well, the argument here says if sons did not contribute to the aging process, if sons did not harry and worry their mothers, they would never get old and they would never die. There would be no fading eyes, no white hair, no weakening of the kidneys, no hardening of the arteries, and no weirdness of the heart. This is a dream of loss, of course, but it's also a dream of power. Better to be a murderer than to be that helpless child. Better to kill the thing that loves you than to have it leave you. This is an extravagant uh, third-mode reading of life on Proust's part, I want to say, and it calls for something of the same mode of reading by us. We can't say the claim is true, and we can't say it's not. The situation is rather like that of Proust's ending and not ending his novel, only rather more difficult, so I'm not quite sure of the sense in which I want to say that Proust's words are true. I think perhaps I want to say they are true to his guilt uh, and its extravagance and to his remorse, and that uh, to the, the confession of this crime is perhaps the only way of now registering everything that he feels he's done wrong. Uh, that no literal expression would ever get anywhere near anything like this. But let me just point out, then in closing, that uh, in his novel, at the famous moment of the goodnight kiss, where the boy uh, essentially badgers his mother until she comes up and says, gives him his goodnight kiss in the bedroom, this scene, so well known to everyone who's read even a bit of Proust, since it occurs in the first 30 pages, and to many people who have never read Proust at all. Uh, in this scene, once the mother has decided, with the father's permission, not only to confer the longed-for kiss on the child, but to stay the whole night with him, so a huge victory for him, he thinks of himself as having begun that night his career as a matricide. This is what he says. I ought to have been happy. I was not. It seemed to me that my mother had just made me a first concession which must be painful for her, that this was a first abdication on her part before the ideal she had conceived for me, and that for the first time she, who was so courageous, was confessing herself defeated. It seemed to me that if I had just gained a victory, it was over her. It seemed to me I had just traced in her soul the first wrinkle and caused the first white hair to appear. Proust is discreetly adapting his Fiore article, and we meet again the extravagance of the letter to Barres, I think, as well. No mother will grow old or die if her son doesn't kill her, and no son will fail to be abandoned if he has a father who can be preferred. Not only had psychoanalysis already been invented at this time, it is being invented here all over again, with Orestes in the place of Oedipus by a writer who had never read Freud.